Raven 2, you are three clicks from the infill point. Heavy resistance reported ahead, so caution is advised. What's up, Red Rocks Church? You guys ready for a great weekend at church? Talk to me. Come on, let me know what we're dealing with here. I love it. It will not be great if we don't first welcome everyone at our Littleton, our Lakewood, our Arvada, our Golden campuses. Of course, can we give it up for all the men and women at our God Behind Bars locations? We love you, ladies and gentlemen. Podcasters, everyone watching online, we love you uh, as well. And I just, I'm telling you, if you will make your hearts ready, listen to me, at all of our campuses, if you will make your hearts ready and receptive, God is going to do something so special this weekend. If you're visiting with us, um, we're in week two of a mini-series that we've titled uh, Take Your Ground. And as I said last week, this whole mini, this whole two-week idea was centered around this one word and this one idea and this one concept that God put on my heart probably five, six weeks ago. And so I had just been sitting on it and I had been studying this idea in the Bible, especially in the book that we're studying it from. And the word is this, okay? It's, if you missed last week, it's, it's victory. Okay, I believe in 2016 and I believe this, again, I'm not blowing you smoke, guys, because this is what pastors do here at church. I believe this with every fiber of my being that God spoke to my heart as one of your pastors and said, Chad, tell your church that 2016 is the year of victory, that by the end of 2016, that one of the adjectives highest on the list of how you would describe your year for all of the different things we're going to experience is you're going to be able to authentically say this was a year in so many areas where I experienced the victory that can only come from God. I believe this with all my heart. Now, with all of this victory talk, I have to ask you guys an extremely important question right up top. Are you ready for some football? Where's my Broncos fans at? Come on. It's Super Bowl weekend. Woo! You know how hard it is for a team to get to the Super Bowl and your Broncos are there and victory is on the horizon and I love it. And I know a few of you are like, well, Chad, we shouldn't be talking about football in church. Church is all about Jesus. And that's just a sport with men in tights who throw a leather ball around and spike it and dance weird and make millions of dollars. Meanwhile, kids are starving over in Cambodia. And I just think we need to talk about Jesus and never talk about anything else. And, you know, all these orange jerseys everywhere. We should be wearing crimson red jerseys with Jesus on the back and 316 on the front. I don't get it. You know, I didn't come here to hear about football. So can we please move on? The answer is no. <laughs> now, I know most of you weren't thinking of just a few of you. You were thinking that. OK, most of you're just thinking, how long is he going to talk in that voice for? <laughs> uh, awkward. I, 
I was actually, I was scrolling through like my Twitter feed this week and, and I followed a particular religious news service and they had an article on my feed and I saw the title of it and it simply said this, it says, does God care about football? And I got ready to read it because Chad deeply cares about football, right? And I'm like, well, I'm in love with God with all my heart. I'd love to know if he, my creator, loves football, right? And then I said, you know what? I'm not going to read it because there's a 50-50, maybe even more chance that there's a good chance. I'm going to read that. And they're going to have some theological discourse as to why God could care less about football with all the perils and all the chaos and all the crazy going on in the world. Surely God couldn't love something as petty and small as football, right? A, a, a boy's or a man's game. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, no, 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 because I really believe God cares about football. And here's why. Hear me out. I know some of you disagree. Hear me out. It's because God cares about us. And I care about football. And God cares about me. And I believe God put that love that I have for football. I believe he put that instinct down on the inside of me. And, and, and let me take it a step further. Let me go theology for a minute, just for a minute. In Genesis, before sin, now you've got to always go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to remember God's heart, right? Because sin has marred what we know as God's original intent. And God's original intent is that we as humans would subdue the earth, that we would lead all of the rest of his parts of creation, that we would lead and take care of it, that we would cultivate the earth. And are you ready for this radical idea? God's original intent before sin entered the world was that we would enjoy the earth, right? And when he created us, here's the deal, earth for Adam and Eve. And then he said, multiply. I want a bunch of my image bearers on earth. It was this like canvas where God says, I created this. Now you're my image bearers. I want you to create and the earth is your blank canvas. Have a blast, create. And so when I'm watching a sport, now for some of you, it's not sports, it's art, it's music, it's science, it's math. And I don't know how that's possible, but it is for some of you. <laughs> Anytime you watch people in any area that you're passionate about, tell me this isn't true. Anytime you watch people uh, do something on the highest of levels, right? When I watch these athletes in pro football do what they do at the speed and at the pace and with the strength and with the grace that they do it, I, I feel like God in the room because I'm like, this is what you designed them to do. And I can't even, I'm five, nine and a half, 210 pounds. I'm 30% body fat. I run about a seven, 12, 40 yard dash. I'm honored to vicariously watch these guys tomorrow through the television and go, that's amazing. Keep it up. Like when I, I got the honor of preaching at one of the Broncos uh, pre, pre-game uh, services. And it was the Patriots game in the regular season where they won in overtime. And clearly it was my word from the Lord that put them over there. Uh, clearly, right? Clearly. Yeah, cl- thank you. Thank you. But I looked at one of the players as an example and I said, hey, Max, look at me. I go, when God, as Psalms 139 says, when he was weaving you together in your mother's womb and he was creating plans for you, good plans for you, do you think he didn't know that he was weaving 6'5", 330 that can run a 4'8", Do you think that was a surprise to him? Do you think that he, he didn't know that you would be playing in this game tonight and getting your first start? Of course he knew that. When you go out there, don't compartmentalize your football career with your relationship with Christ, Max. I go, those two things were meant to go together. You're an artist. You're helping paint on the canvas something that millions of people are going to enjoy watching because before sin got in the world, we were created to cultivate, create, subdue, and then enjoy the work of our hands, right? This is why millions of people are going to watch this game game tomorrow is because there's this deep need and sense of enjoyment. We want to stop for a minute. Enjoy. Now, I understand football can be a source of idolatry like music can, like art can, like anything else we enjoy can. 
I know that because of sin, we're tempted to worship created things more than creators. So here's the deal. If the Broncos lose and you call in sick the next day, it's an idol in your life, okay? If you throw your remote through the drywall, I speak from experience, it's an idol in your life, okay? If the Broncos, God forbid, and I don't believe they're going to, if they lose tomorrow, look at me, everyone at every campus, you're going to be all right. God is still on the throne, okay? Life is good. Enjoy it tomorrow. Watch these Greek God-like men get out there and get after each other. There's another reason when we watch these football games, even if you're not a big fan, that we're drawn to it. And it's because it's this tiny little microcosm of the bigger story that's happening. There's the good and then there's the evil lining up against us, trying to keep us from our goal, right? Trying to keep us from victory in life, right? You got Peyton Manning who just represents just good, inherent good. And then you've got Scam Newton who just represents inherent evil and they're lining up against each other, right? And there's part of us in our hearts that we were born into this story of good versus evil and and knowing that we've got good things ahead of us, but there's an enemy that's trying to take our heads off, right? Jesus says the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy from you. And so when we're watching this little, what we call just a little play game, there's something in us that's rooting so hard for our team because we were designed at the core of our souls to taste and experience victory, right? That's why God says in 2016, I want to reestablish this idea and this thought about victory. And that's why I chose the book of Joshua for these two weeks to look at. It's because Joshua is a book about conquest, It's a book about God promising you, hey, Joshua, everywhere you and Israel put your feet because you're my covenant kids, not because you're perfect. They were far from perfect. But because you're my covenant people, Joshua, everywhere that you put your feet, you're going to have victory. But you still got to get your feet there. You still got to walk in courage. You still got to be careful to do everything that I've written in the word of God. This is the book of Joshua. And so last week, if you remember, I gave you the two Beatitudes of victory. Two of the first principles that are timeless and universal. This was thousands of years ago in the book of Joshua. These principles still apply to us today. The first beatitude is you be courageous. Every day you wake up, there's going to be an enemy that's lining up against you to destroy you. If you're going to have victory in this lifetime, you're going to have to be courageous. But courage looks different in the kingdom of God than we typically associate it in the kingdom of this world, right? Because the next thing he says is the second beatitude. He says, don't just be courageous, but he says this. He says, you be careful. You be careful, Joshua, to do everything that I command you and everything that's written in the book of the law. He says, think about it, eat it, sleep it, drink it, meditate on it. He says, day and night, why? Victory. He goes, so that you may be prosperous and successful everywhere that you go, everywhere you put your foot. There's a direct correlation between taking this book here, God's written holy word and love letter to us, and, and, and treating it as something so holy and something so right. And the greatest amount of courage you're going to need to Joshua isn't battle tactics and it's not strength and you're not going to need to outnumber them. God says in Joshua, I'm going to do the heavy lifting. You can go read the book for yourself, and God just keeps doing miracle after miracle. Half the time they do battles where they don't even really swing the swords. They just got to obey and go out there, usually with the odds stacked against them. It's God's glory in this lifetime that he would stack the odds against his people so that when we still walk in victory, he gets the glory, right? This has been God's MO since day one. This is how he works. 
So he says, Joshua, you know what real courage is in the kingdom of God? It's not being the biggest or the strongest or the fastest or the most beautiful or the wealthiest or the most talented. It's not about your five-year or your 10-year plan. At the end of the day, it's radical obedience to this because sometimes you're going to read a command from my holy word that is going to completely butt heads with the situation you're in. And I'm going to ask you, Red Rocks Church, to do something in that situation that makes no sense, that's completely counterintuitive to what you want to do. And I need you to be courageous enough to do it. So be careful, be courageous. And now, week two, we get the third beatitude. And I want to read it. It's Joshua chapter three. I'll start in verse one. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from beep and went to the Jordan (laughs) where they camped before crossing over. Sorry, I'm known for saying things I shouldn't. So I just bleeped right past it. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that's a a representation of the presence of God. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark and do not go near it. And I really wish I had time to talk about the ark of the covenant. We'll get back to that sometime and talk about the presence of the Lord always going before us when we don't know which way to go. Whole nother sermon for another day. But then in verse five, which we're about to read, this is where we camp because again, we're going to get the third beatitude of victory. And this is where we camp for the whole rest of the weekend. Joshua told the people, and here it is, you ready? The first one was be careful. The second one was be courageous. Now we get this one. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And I want to talk about that for a minute. This is a consecration. This, this word consecration is this, this ancient Hebrew Old Testament word and idea that unfortunately doesn't get talked about enough in church. I'm part of the blame for that because I'm in charge of talking in front of the church. And I would love to have told you that I've spent a lot more time talking to you guys about this ancient Hebrew idea of consecration because it is integral to victory in your life. You heard what he said? He said, consecrate who? Consecrate yourselves. Do you know what this is God doing? This is God inviting you in to participate in your inheritance. This is God inviting you in to participate in victory. We know God's going to do the heavy lifting. We know old covenant and new covenant. God's in charge of the miracles. God's in charge of the supernatural. But there are some natural things that he's given us from day one that he says, I could do that for you, but I created you to do that. So in relationship and for relationship's sake, I'm going to invite you into this process. You're going to participate. Do you know what Joshua said? He didn't say sit there and pray so that God will. He said, no, you're going to get up and do something. You're going to consecrate yourselves. Here's why. Tomorrow, God's going to do wonders amongst you. And here's what I know about God. God doesn't do wonders and miracles amongst us flippantly. He is a holy God, Red Rocks Church. A God that would do miracles and wonders on behalf of us to continually bring us victory. A God who would do that flippantly. Do you know what he would create in us? Entitlement. Come on, parents. You know, that's one of the most toxic and deadly things that we can lead our kids to is this sense of entitlement, this sense of our parents just get us out of everything all the time without our participation. Yeah, (laughs) hallelujah. Sorry. I talk for a living. Wow. God's calling us in. He says, listen, I'm going to do the heavy lifting. 
Tomorrow, I'm going to literally part the Jordan River so that you can walk across it and start to take victory and take your inheritance. But here's what we're going to do before I do any of my showing off. You're going to get your heart right. You're going to get your bodies right. You're going to get your mind right. You're going to go into this thing cleaned up. And this principle is universal. See, in the kingdom of God, consecration always precedes victory. This isn't just Old Covenant. This isn't just one isolated verse. This is a universal principle that is scattered throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. In the kingdom of God, you need to understand this, consecration always precedes victory. And this is the year of victory. So by default, do you know what this is the year of for Red Rocks Church? This is a year of consecration. This is a year of delving into the deepest, even sometimes darkest and most problematic parts of our heart. And because we have been saved and freed by the gospel, we can, without feeling condemnation, look at the worst parts of who we are this year and say, God, deal with it. God, change me. God, give me holy desires. God, replace this unholy desire with a holy desire so that I can serve you in greater degrees of victory, so that I can walk in the fullness, God, of what you have for me. Consecration always precedes victory. This is an ancient word uh, that pronounced charash, charash. I can't speak Hebrew. Sorry. Skip that class. Very important though. And it means this means to be set apart for a holy and a divine purpose. That's what it means. Now, here's what's interesting. Under the Old Covenant, remember, everything they did in the Old Testament was physical. It was external. It was geographical. They didn't do it as individuals. They did everything communal and as a nation. And the New Testament, as I said last week, tells us that everything they were doing between God and Israel was a foreshadowing or a type of what Jesus would do for you and I as individuals, right? This is why we still read Old Testament historical stories like this. And then my job is to filter them back and go, okay, what was happening here? Now, what's that look like now that we're under a new covenant? Now that it's not an external thing, now that it's a heart thing, now that it's not a geographical thing, it's an internal thing, uh, what's that look like? And so you need to understand for them, when God said, consecrate yourselves, and Joshua said, that's God's command for us, they knew exactly what that meant because they had been given in the wilderness the Mosaic law from their former leader, Moses, right? 613 laws in their Torah. And one of the things that involved ceremonial washing or consecration, when God said to consecrate yourself, here's what that would entail. A couple different things. Number one, they were all, and we're talking about several hundred thousand people. They were all, the day before God was going to part the Jordan River, they were going to get into the shallow part of that river and they were all going to bathe. And they were all going to spend a lot, think about a couple hundred thousand people all having to bathe in the same river in the same day. That's a party, right? And then secondly, though, and this wasn't as easy as we have it now, they had to wash their clothes clean and pure. That's what they had to do. They had to bathe and they had to wash their clothes. And this is what they spent the whole day doing. And they knew that that was part of the Levitical law to consecrate themselves. It was a ceremonial washing because God does nothing miraculous flippantly, right? He's a holy God. So they bathed and then they cleaned their clothes. Now you gotta know these are nomadic people. These are people who were desert wanderers. High temperatures, not a lot of water. So you gotta understand for them to bathe was a luxury. For all of the amazing things God's kids were in Israel in the wilderness, one thing they weren't was hygienic. It was an absolute luxury and rarely happened if you read history. 
Rarely happened that they got to bathe and they got to clean their clothes like that. Now, here's the second thing that God would ask them to do. It's almost like God's, you ever, you ever read God's commands and it feels like he's messing with you? This would have been one because the second thing they had to do according to the Levitical law, no, re, no relations. There's kids in the room. That's code for sex, parents. <laughs> no relations for that whole period until God did the miraculous thing. You're gonna take a bath. You're gonna be clean. You're gonna clean your clothes as good as you possibly can. And then you're going to, here's the word. This is a cuss word in our, our, our English language. You're gonna abstain from something. <gasps> you're gonna not do something, right? And, and here's where I feel like God's messing with them. The one time this year that they're gonna be cleaner and better smelling and more hygienic than ever. And God goes, yeah, yeah, one more thing. No funny stuff. <laughs> Stay away. Not, no, no funny stuff. But God, I mean, God, he, my husband finally for once smells nice. I would kind of like to get my paws on him. God, just once. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm going to do wonders tomorrow. I need you to obey me even when it doesn't make sense. Because God's always got something in mind. So this is what happens. So now the question is, well, what's that look like? under the new covenant, because Jesus, when he died on the cross, he freed us up for any of this type of stuff. No more ceremonial washings. No more, hey, abstinence so I can do something awesome on your part tomorrow. Like, no, no more of that. God, didn't, God doesn't work that way anymore because Jesus has completely fulfilled all of the law's righteous demands, right? So, so what's this consecration piece look like in the New Testament? Let me start with the whole idea of bathing. And washing. Listen to what Ephesians 4, or excuse me, Ephesians 5 says. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, what? Loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might, what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her. Here's the, here's the, here's the word. By the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and that she would be blameless. Christ has always been considered the bridegroom. And we've always, as the church, been called metaphorically the bride, right? Sorry, guys, but we're the bride. And what we're being told here is in this consecration piece under the new covenant, the bathing has been done. Jesus, on your behalf, has already started the most integral and important part of the consecration process is that he finished the cleaning part for you on the cross. You are perfectly bathed. You are perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. You are as clean right now as you will ever be, not because you might be living the best that you've ever lived right now, but because by faith you've received the saving work of Jesus Christ in your place. Listen to me. You, if you have, are completely and perfectly ceremonially clean. You're washed. Jesus did it. He gave up his life on behalf of us, his bride. He laid down his life for us so that he may present to God a holy, spotless, blameless people. Isn't that awesome news, Red Rocks? Isn't that great news? Yeah, that's worth clapping for. That should bring peace to your heart. That should bring joy to your heart. That should get you excited about life and your future. The second piece was this, though. It wasn't just take a bath to Israel, right? It was what? It was clean your clothes. I want your clothes to be as clean and as spotless as possible before I do a miracle. Because what? Consecration precedes victories. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, Israel. I'll do wonders amongst you. Galatians 3. Listen to the language Paul uses. It's on purpose. He says, for you are all children of God. How? Through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Listen to the language. 
This isn't arbitrary again. This is purposeful, like putting on new clothes. No one knew the old covenant law like Paul. He's the theologians of theologians. When he used that language in the book of Ephesians, or excuse me, Galatians, that was extremely purposeful. He's trying to say, hey, listen, God, as I said in Ephesians, has already bathed you. That part of consecration is done. And now in Galatians, he's saying, listen, God has made your clothes new. Do you remember how we always talk about the prodigal son around here? It's like our favorite story in the Bible. What's the first response of the father when the son comes home? To clothe him, to put on righteous garments. He gives him the best of the best. It says he puts on a robe and he puts on a ring and he puts new sandals on his feet. You're a new creation in Christ. And when it comes to consecrating yourself under the new covenant, listen to me. Jesus has done the heavy lifting on the cross. You are bathed clean. You are washed white as snow. You are wearing garments of righteousness now. It doesn't matter how you think, how you act, how you, you are the righteousness of Christ because of what you believe by faith through grace, right? It is not by works so that none of us can boast. But that now, as I said last week, once you have been saved by grace, you were created, Ephesians 2.10 says, in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works. There's this third piece to the puzzle and the piece is this abstinence piece. See, Jesus bathed us and cleaned us and then he, he put on new stuff, but there's this second part and you know what it is? It's not putting on, it's putting off the old. It, it's, it's stopping from things. It's abstaining from things that are gonna destroy you. Listen to the language Paul uses to show us this, that we have a role to play. So far, Jesus has done everything, but this is the part, the putting off is the part where we all throughout the New Testament, we get called to participate in, to step out in faith and to really peer deep into our hearts and go, God, this part of my heart, it's not practically holy in your sight. Now, I know I've been saved from it, but practically I want to live it out. And that's what God wants. That's where victory's at. And, and God says, yeah, this, this practical consecration, this practical holiness, this taking the old you, even though you're dead in sin and alive in Christ, we still want to get all of that stuff out. And life's the process of you getting sanctified from glory to glory to glory, the Bible says. So listen to Ephesians 4. With the Lord's authority, Paul says, I say this, live no longer as Gentiles do. For they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. Okay, tell me this language isn't participatory. Tell me what he says next doesn't invite us into this consecration process. It says, throw off. You've been bathed. You've gotten a brand new, clean, perfectly righteous set of clothing. You're a new creation. Throw off all that old stuff. Don't wear that old stuff when you got new gear. You got new gear. Wear the, like, right? Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, here it is, let the spirit renew your thoughts. Everything starts up here. Behavior always starts up here. When it happens out here, it's a manifestation of what's already been going on up here, right? He says, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and truly holy. 
And if you go on to continue to read Paul's flow of thoughts in a book of Ephesians, we don't have time. He starts to talk about ethics just unapologetically. He says, don't do this. Don't do this anymore. Don't do this anymore. Stop doing that. Stop doing this. He says, start doing this. He starts putting all kinds of put off language. Throw off. And banned at all campuses, you guys can go ahead and come back up. And here's what I want us to understand about consecration. Jesus has perfected his finished work in you when you by faith just simply invite him into your heart, right? We know that. It's finished. You can rest in that. This is the fuel with which everything in life should be fueled by. But now practically, we are invited to play a part in this consecration process where God says, listen, stop that. And I don't know that he uses that language. I just do because it's my language. Like I look at my kids and I go, Jude, stop that. Jane, knock that off. Benji, please, for the love, stop. <laughs> Cruz is only six months. So I'm just like, please sleep tonight. Please sleep. Right. That's all I say to him so far. But when I say that, sometimes my tone might be sharp. I don't know what God's tone is necessarily for you, but, but here's what I know. When I'm telling them that, it is because I, without question, you know this, parents, I have their absolute best interest in mind. I want nothing but the best for them, right? We get that, moms and dads. Even when they don't understand my stop it and my knock it off, Here's what I know that they're going to know if I do my job right. For every knock it off and every stop it, there's going to be a thousand I love yous. I was reading a quote from a guy named Watchman Nee in an amazing book he wrote a long time ago. And he said, no man has ever consecrated himself that was not first touched by the love of God. And listen, if you look at the, if you look at the New Testament, for every knock it off and stop it, you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to thwart victory. I'm not going to do wonders amongst you while you're participating in that. For every time God says that, there's a thousand I love you's in there. And the reason is, is because he knows in our fallen nature that in order to really trust him with the radical commands of God, to really be careful to do everything written in this thing, we are going to need to know every day how deeply God loves you and I. Because there's going to be plenty of times, Hebrews 12 or 13 tells us, that a, a, a God who's a good God, who's a good father, will discipline his children. He's going to give you stop-its and knock-it-offs. This is part of the consecration process. And consecration always, Old Testament and New Testament, precedes victory. Always. Every time God says, knock it off in your spirit, in your heart. Every time the Holy Spirit's convicting you and saying, don't do that. Don't look at that. Quit looking at that on the computer screen. It's going to destroy you. Quit going there. Quit going to that same place. Have you met anyone in that environment that has led you anywhere near victory? Watch who you're hanging out with. Stop, knock that off. Stop spending money like that on that stuff. It's never going to give you what you think it's going to give you. Stop, knock it off. You're putting yourself in such a, a position to not walk in victory financially. God looks at us and says, please, please break up with them. Knock that off. He's not working for you. I know he's nice and every now and then says nice things and he looks real good. Stop, dump him in the name of Jesus. Stop. 
and it's a father and he's just doing it because what he wants for you is to enjoy this world that he gave us and he loves you and he wants victory. But listen to me, consecration precedes victory and we get a small role in the consecration process, which is to by faith come before God and say, God, every part of my unclean heart, would you please, please, please change me from the inside out? Would you use the grace of God, the power that comes with the grace of God? Would you use that to fuel change in me? I want to be holy, God, but I'm scared to be holy because right now it just really seems like this thing I'm doing, even though your word says not to do it, it just seems right and it feels right. And I haven't tasted enough of the death in this sin yet to really think that sin's that big of a deal. And God's going, it's such a big deal. You're going to wake up one day and that's going to go from fun to completely destructive. And you're not going to know what hit you. And you're my kid and I love you. So knock it off. Don't do that. And here's the deal, at all of our campuses, everybody has a don't do that right now. Everybody in your heart has some space where God, however his tone is, whatever he would say is, as a father, knock it off. And the spoils of the kingdom of God, Red Rocks, go to those who are courageous enough to be careful with the holiness of God and to say, God, I'm scared. I don't know how you're going to do this. I feel like a failure. God, every time I've tried in my own strength to quit this or stop this or not do this anymore, I've just failed and I've, I'm sick of failing. So I just decided this was going to be a part of my life. And now I'm kind of made it a friend. God said, don't, don't make friends with that. It's going to destroy you. And I've got something so much better. But there's this time period between when, when you abstain and when you stop and when you start to taste victory, and that's the vulnerable season where you develop the most character and you develop the most intimacy and trust between you and God, because for that season, you got nothing, it feels like. And God says, that's okay. Trust the process. Stop. Consecrate yourself, because tomorrow, I'm going to do a miracle for you. I'm going to do wonders amongst you. We had this thing growing up as a kid. I grew up in a denomination that I'm very proud of but I also have some baggage. That's every denomination we grew up in if you went to church, right? You got some pride in it. Even if you don't want it, you're just like, yeah. But then there's something. One of the things that we did was this thing called an altar call. And we don't do these at Red Rock Church, really. And so I want to explain this to you. What this basically was, was at the end of the sermons, the pastors would, would, would give their charge and they would give their call and they would ask for a response. And, and the churches had what were called like real altars. Now, we, we're in Vietnamese grocery stores and dinner theaters and all these weird spots. So we don't have that as much, right? Creepy theme parks. We don't have real altars, but what it was was come down to the front, get out of your seat, move, take a step of faith and do it in community. Don't be afraid of who's sitting next to you. Don't care who's around you. Don't care that the people next to you who know you best know how imperfect you are. That's the whole reason we do this. This is a moment of consecration. We're at all of our campuses about to unapologetically have an altar call. Now, I respect the fact that this is something different for us and we're shaking it up. But listen to me, God, about five or six weeks ago, put this on my heart. Like, do what you grew up seeing, do an altar call. And I'm like, "Mm -mm, that's weird. I'm not going to be called weird. You can call me a lot of things. I don't want to be weird church guy. God's like, obey, do this. And then I started thinking about my dad. And here's what I was thinking about. When I was a kid, and I get emotional because this is, Now that I'm old enough to appreciate it, this is so beautiful to me. But when I was a kid, I I was at church so much, I just quit caring about altar calls and I just didn't pay much attention. But every now and then my dad would get out of his seat when the pastor was calling him forward and he'd come down to the front 
and I'd see him bend down and I'd, uh, on his knees, and I wasn't used to that with my dad, and I'd see tears come out of my dad's eyes, and I would act like I'm still playing my little game or writing my little stuff, you know, during church, but out of one corner of my eye and with my full heart, I would be watching my father in complete holy submission to God. And listen to me, as a kid, I couldn't articulate it then. It's taken me years to be able to articulate what I'm telling you now. I couldn't articulate then, but as a kid, I would watch my father do that. And, and here's what I would think, even though I wouldn't articulate it. I think, we're gonna be all right. My dad is crying in front of other people in the presence of God for God to do whatever it was the pastor was saying he wanted to, you know, whatever he was responding to. My dad and my mom would do this and I would see tears and my dad wasn't a big crier. I hardly ever saw him cry. But at that altar, man, his tears would start to flow and I'm like, you know what? My dad loves God. And, and for so many years I went prodigal and I went rogue. I did horrible things. And I couldn't have been further from God. And you know, and parents listen to me, future parents listen to me. One of the most important things that helped be the catalyst to bring me back to God and bow a humble knee to him when I was 23 years old was those memories of how submitted my parents were to the Lord and watching the victory they were walking in as adults that I wasn't walking in as a 23-year-old kid. That's what parents brought me back was that altar. And so in these next few minutes at all of our campuses, and I realize we're doing this at different locations and it's problematic because there's not a live speaker. Listen to me, you don't need a live speaker. What you just need to do is obey. And if God is calling you in these next few minutes, if there's an area of your life where God is saying, and he's been saying, stop it. Knock it off. Then I'm gonna ask you by faith to step out of your seat and at your respective campuses to come down to the front. And they'll be because of the, some full rooms this weekend, there's gonna be some logistical issues. Who cares? It has nothing to do with it all working out pretty. If you can't make it down to the front, create another space in the back, create another space in the middle, come down the aisles. The expression of faith, the getting up out and in front of your community of believers is saying, God, I need you to purge me of this. God, I wanna be holy. This is a call to holiness, Red Rocks Church. So I'm gonna pray. And when I'm done praying, when I say amen, I'm going to challenge you guys. Dads, come on. This is the ultimate form of manliness. It's not winning a football game tomorrow. It's not being tough and having big muscles. The ultimate form of manliness is a man on his knees broken before the Lord saying, God, make me a holy son of yours. God, I want to be holy for you. I want to be holy for my kids. I want to live a holy life for my wife, God. But there's an enemy that's trying to destroy me. And I feel the weight of that every day. And so, God, I'm just stepping out of my seat to simply say, God, do with me whatever you want. But I need your help. I want to be holy. Give me holy affections, God. Heavenly Father, I pray now that faith would arise in our building, at all of our campuses. That people would get over fears and insecurities and that people would step up and that people would come down to these altars and that we would cry out to you, that we would consecrate our hearts to you because tomorrow you're gonna do wonders amongst us. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Come on down.